As I was saying, it's very good to see you all. Thank you for coming. Uh, down at Hokioji, we did not get the amount of snow that uh, came here. And so uh, I, I got to be amazed at the snow forts on every corner and things of that nature. Uh, so, but let me get to it. Let me get to what I'm, I'm uh, wanting to talk about this morning. And before I do that, acknowledging that we are in land that was stolen and that that's part of the karma in our lives. Uh, I'd like to dedicate this talk to learning how to skillfully transform that karma for our own benefit and the benefit of all beings. We are the beneficiaries of the Buddha's karma. And I'm thankful for that as well. So this morning I, I, I want to uh, name my talk, Doing As We See Fit. And what that's about is um, everybody's koan. How shall I lead my life? And probably more particularly, taking up the Buddhist question, is there a path of non-suffering? Because we don't entirely believe that. We're wishing that it's true. We have lots of ideas, our own and the Buddha's, about how to accomplish that. But it's not uh, the same for each one of us. We are each quite individual. And so how do we cope with that? In my own observation, there are some things that uh, it's important for us to incorporate in our decision-making about that. So for one, our practice isn't exactly like the Buddha's. Our monastic practice isn't entirely monastic. Our lay practice isn't entirely lay practice. Uh, there's a book that I've been reading and would like to recommend to you called uh, Neither Monk Nor Layman. It was, it's a, a writing about uh, our ancestry in Japan. Uh, and I would say that even though the book is about Japan, and even though we often think of Japan as being a place that uh, doesn't have monasticism, whereas other Buddhist countries do, uh, that that's not entirely true, or that even that there's uh, a difference between Buddhism and other religions relative to celibacy and the practice of monastic practice. But it's something that was very clear and very common in India at the time that the Buddha practiced. Uh, so that's just a recognition that those conditions are different. There's some support in that practice. There's also tons of delusions that come 
with, whether you're a monastic or a lay person. So we all in that way are connected to what people had to figure out in Buddhist time too. <clears throat> I think there's a couple of other things uh, that in our practice today uh, can complicate matters. Number one, having just recently uh, spent a good deal of time reading the Pali Canon version of the Buddhist life, which always makes me smile for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is the enormous effort that must have occurred to take the Pali Canon, which is uh, volumes, volumes, <laughs> none of them written in uh, sequential order of the Buddha's life, and uh, basically taking it and doing their best to take everything in there that had something to do with the Buddha's life and put it, put it in. Uh, linear time order. I picture people in a room about this size with an enormous supply of post-it notes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very appreciative of that text. But there's a lot of, of uh, the Pali Canon that, that talks about karma and past lives, and we hardly talk about that at all. We just don't. Um, and I, I think our understanding of karma and what it is or how we're using it also helps to confuse things a little bit. Um, and I would just say that the, the world is as it is. It has no beginning or end. And uh, the Buddha had a lot of uh, thinking that was expressed and written about in the Pali Canon because he talked about it and he talked about past lives and in our culture that's sort of passe and not really okay to talk about. It's, or, or if you do your, you know, you suddenly, the judgments about you, <laughs> most importantly, your own judgments about you, um, uh, get in the way. They're not uh, Bernie Glassman's three tenets of don't know mind and bearing witness. Uh, so the Buddha repeatedly, wonderfully said, uh, in, in his own way, what you believe is not nearly as important as finding out for yourself. And every single one of you is capable of doing that. That's something that every human comes equipped to be able to do. So that's a little commercial for us returning to that teaching. What we observe for ourselves, uh, what we experience for ourselves, is the thing that the only way that we really can follow the Buddha's path. It's the only way we can know and realize the truth of of what would you, what would you, what do we, of this really 
anything else beyond that is, even that's going a little far <laughs> in terms of how language represents reality. It's also true that in the Buddhist time there was more support and just more, uh, it was a more common phenomenon for people to leave home to take up monastic practice. Uh, and that's really uh, not very present in even cultures that appreciate monasticism right now. It's uh, monastic traditions just almost by definition involve uh, giving things up and we're living in a culture that depends uh, for its livelihood literally on consumption and increasing consumption. In our particular United States culture, I think we also have a strong myth of freedom being doing what I want, not being restrained. Uh, so that, that just seeps into, you know, it's like we drink that water and it, uh, it affects, it affects uh, in ways that aren't very easy to recognize how we think about things and what we value. And if nothing else, just the signals that we get from the rest of the culture fitting in uh, are all affected by these things. We don't have to draw any conclusions or have any opinions. That's an option. It's like this giant option that we usually don't think that we have, nor do we sometimes really choose to uh, exercise it. We don't have to have a point of view. We don't have to have an idea. That's very hard to do though. It's very hard to do. I uh, kind of stumbled or I was, you know, gifted through whatever means. Uh, one time I caught myself saying to myself, this was actually part of my Shuso ceremony. You don't have to have an opinion. The Shuso ceremony is when you come before the uh, Sangha and um, you talk about a koan that you've been given, you teach about it, and then you answer questions from the Sangha. It's a little more graphic. But as my uh, teachers, um, I was at Great Vow when I did my Shiso ceremony, and um, one of my teachers there, Hogan, said, the Shuso ceremony is about uh, the Sangha seeing you exactly as you are. That's its only purpose. I found that helpful, but it doesn't, it didn't keep me from being scared to death and trembling. So I want to tell you a story about, uh, from the Kandaraka Sutra and talk a little bit about a teaching uh, that goes along with doing as you see fit. Uh, a man named Pesa, who was a, uh, an elephant herder 
and Kandaraka, a wandering monk, decided to stop in and visit the Buddha Sangha, which was spread out across the plains that they were occupying at the time in complete silence. And it was common in that time for uh, uh, communities of monastics to be out in the plains and meditating, but oftentimes also debating and talking about teachings and uh, things of that nature. So to come across uh, basically, you know, like the spectators at a basketball, you know, it's like a large gathering of people. It was a big crowd in the middle of the plains uh, that was just sitting silently. Just sitting like we do in Sashin. It's quite a thing, sort of, even then, an event. And what happened was, uh, Pesat and Kandarika came up and paid their homage to the Buddha, and then Tessa exclaimed his admiration for the wonderfulness of this large, silent group and for the clarity of the Buddhist teaching. So already we kind of see whatever idea we might have about uh, an elephant uh, herder. Um, you know, our first idea might, might be, we don't really know anything, but already it doesn't sound like something we have an idea about. In any case, the very fact that he would come and first express um, himself, you know, he, he said, it's wonderful, it's amazing that your teaching is so clear and that so many people are gathered here practicing it. And the Buddha basically said, yeah, you're right, it is amazing how clear I've, I've taught this and, and how these many people are here practicing in a way that really will benefit all beings. And they start having some conversation a little bit beyond that. Um, Tessa at, at one point says, you know, he said, you know, even lay people get to do this sometimes for a little while and get to experience this. And the Buddha says, yes, this isn't just for monastics and how joyful that that can be so. But then he goes on and, uh, hold on a second. I love this story. Okay. So then uh, they start having a conversation about um, how problematic human beings are and, you know, how much they get themselves into trouble and how wonderful this practice would be for them if they would join in with it. And again, uh, the Buddha uh, um, says, yeah. He basically says, um, 
this is a wonderful teaching, even though people continue to be shady, rotten, and tricky. <laughs> <laughs> and Pessa talks about his elephants. He said, boy, they're tricky. He said, but they're not tricky in all the ways that human beings are. Human <laughs> beings are the worst. <laughs> and this is, this is doing this and say, even though what they're really looking for is to be happy. You know, and Pessa is clearly a thoughtful person. You can see that. And so the Buddha, again, he agrees, so true, so true. Um, and then he talks about four kinds of people. He says, there are people that torment themselves and uh, are dedicated to that. There are people that torment others and are dedicated to that. There are people that torment themselves and others and are dedicated to that. And then he says, and there are people that uh, neither, you know, that, that don't do either one of those. He said, um, and and he says uh, to Pessa, um, which one of those categories do you like the sound of? Mm. And Pessa says, he kind of goes through them all. He says, well, I don't like the first group. I don't like the second. I don't like the third. But he says, I do like the sound of the fourth group. And then he says, but now I have to go. I've got a lot to do, a lot to do. And the Buddha looks at him and he says, um, well, now is the time for you to do as you see fit. Now, this is kind of a code phrase in the Pali Canon. This is like, well, there's a lot I could teach you, but be as you are, you know, sort of signaling. There's a choice here. You have, you know, this is a choice point. But Pesa and Kandaraka go on their way. And then he turns back to the Sangha and he says, this is a very wise man. He said, uh, uh, he, he's living in a way that is very beneficial. And it's too bad that he didn't stay um, because it would have been even more beneficial. Nonetheless, it's been beneficial for him. He's better, he's better off than if he hadn't come at all. So this is something that all of us uh, kind of need to hear. We do do as we see fit. We aspire. And then we, we just are karmically conditioned in certain ways. We don't have all the choices in the world. And we're not always willing to go with those choices. You know, this morning when I was coming, as I've been trying to practice mindfulness and uh, uh, just being willing to just be here and present with don't know mind and bearing witness without having an idea of things. And I realized this morning, I thought, well, well I actually realized yesterday, I thought, well, I put off preparing this talk, so that means it's going to be a little nerve-wracking, and it was. And I got here, 
And I just, you know, uh, I realized even though I'm kind of a nervous wreck and I forgot my robe and that made me a nervous wreck. And uh, I was understanding that we have other things to do that are priorities. And that was like, okay, well, I got to remember this. And okay, I better make sure that. Uh, after a little over 20 years of practice, uh, I, I now have a little bit of a chance to make the choice of just seeing that and, and just feeling in my body, okay, this isn't good for my body. My body is happy about this. <laughs> but I don't have to have an opinion, and I do have a choice. And I made some choices, and now that karmic benefit is being received. And so let me put that to good use. I'm usually, you know, way more of the time uh, caught in it at some point. But because of the practice, um, and because of really the intention that uh, early on in my career, and I hope a bunch of you did, uh, what was it, on last Saturday? Yeah, vow and intention. Yeah. Um, that vow really helps steer, steer us back because when we plant it, then, you know, we can see it. But not only do we have past karmic conditions that are way bigger than we can possibly take in, but we make choices that contribute to uh, making a problem for ourselves. So, I want, I found a wonderful article that talked about part of the conundrum that I think we all struggle with. I mentioned earlier this book about neither layperson nor monastic. There's problems in both paths. But oftentimes, uh, we have a really difficult time um, saying, how can we be detached like a monastic and compassionate um, by being in the world and taking care of people. That's a conundrum that we all deal with. And I found a wonderful uh, piece about this um, on the web. Uh, let me make sure that I get this person's name right. So it's a piece called Detachment and Compassion in Early Buddhism by Elizabeth J. Harris on um, the accesstoinsight.org website. And I, uh, I'm only going to talk about detachment, uh, even though she talks about both compassion and detachment. But what she really brings forward that's helpful is um, how we normally think about detachment. She said there's really two words in the Pali Canon, um, and the way they get translated is they both mean detachment. But not only do they have subtleties that don't come through, um, 
but uh, they have subtleties related to that was not only the Buddhist time, but a different language that we're trying to equate with our own language. We know those terms. So she really does a wonderful job of uh, helping us understand some of the subtleties. So the two terms that she talks about both mean separation, aloofness, and seclusion. And she points out that those are normally uh, um, things that don't sound like they go with compassion. But she said, uh, there's three words, three types of, one of the terms is uh, uh, viraga, and the other one is viveka which basically means um, uh, no attachment. <laughs> and she equates it with the English word, or she thinks the better word for uh, uh, the translation is non-attachment. Because in our English language, we um, associate uh, separation, aloofness, and seclusion with um, being uh, averse to being in contact with other human beings. She says, in the Pali language, they have three forms of viveka or um, detachment. And there is uh, physical withdrawal is one way, is one term that's that's called kaya viveka. There's sita viveka, which is mental withdrawal, and then there's upadi viveka, withdrawal from the roots of suffering. So this is subtle, but I don't think we have difficulty seeing the possibility for some clarity there. There can be Withdrawal, which is one of the meanings that this word of detachment carries, and it can be mental or physical. But that doesn't quite, that's not quite the same as withdrawal from the roots of suffering. And she goes on to talk about that in a way that's very helpful. Um, We tend to equate renunciation, which the Buddha encouraged, with a physical withdrawal, which either punishes the body or completely rejects human contact. Now, this is something the Buddha went through himself in spades. Um, in spades. And he really, uh, he almost killed himself, um, but was rescued by higher beings. They came and went, no, you can't starve yourself to death. We're going to interfere. We will give you spiritual food. Now, these are the kind of stories that don't go over too well in America, but they fit pretty well with, yeah, it's easy to get caught up in a way that's not helpful for, uh, with, for um, abandoning the roots of suffering. So she goes on to talk about how um, 
in the Buddha's words, asceticism or reclusiveness um, can lead to clinging to solitude, which leads to pride, carelessness, attention-seeking, and hypocrisy. And if it's not linked to the cultivation of moral virtues and the effort to gain insight through meditation. Elizabeth goes uh, into some of the, the examples of, even in English, we, we have some subtleties with our words. And if you actually look at um, our definition of English, in English, of detachment, uh, it can be used for something uh, as broad as uh, sending a group of the military someplace different than where they are, you know, to a different base. It can, it can be aloofness, it can be withdrawal, but it can also be um, an open scientific mind, for instance, where you are doing research and observation without uh, trying to prove something. You're doing it to find out something. So that these meanings of detachment exist in English language. We just don't necessarily use them when we're looking at today and how am I going to deal with my karma in this moment. So it's very helpful to try to uh, give ourselves words that help us um, do this thing of don't know mind. Don't know mind about that there is even me and that I know what that is that there's a right way to do or be something. And the karmic part of this is we can't just change things because we want to. We've got a garden that we're in. I love the Buddha's talk about the gardens. And I also am observing that I'm two minutes over. So I think I'm going to stop now and say, having given you something to chew on, we have some time for questions. And I understand that Eno has made a vow to stop <laughs> questions in time for the next event to occur with all of its benefits and highlights. So I will be quiet. We recommend that you read this wonderful piece. And I, uh, I put it in the talk, so when it don't write it down. Maybe you'll get to read it. Can you say the name of the piece again? The name of the piece is hmm, hidden in my pieces of paper. Okay, so the detachment and compassion in early Buddhism by Elizabeth J. Harris. I'm saving for the uh, Elizabeth's insights into compassion for another talk. That's good to read. Yes. There's a question. Who is the author of the book about the neither monk nor lay oh, person? The author of that book is on the same page. 
Richard M. Jaffe, J-A-F-F-E. And I actually found it in PDF, but I recommend from having read as far as I've had that you get the book because there's eight bazillion footnotes and they're uh, very important in how he talks about things. Okay, any other questions? Yeah. Um... We talked about Barry Glassman's three tenets, and it sounds like there's steps in the way of making a choice rather than not making a choice. And you said the first one was... Let me, let me do a quick summary. Uh, that is Bernie Glassman's take on the three pure precepts, do no harm, do all good, free all beings. So in his work, which is particularly uh, well known for being um, uh, very tied into social engagement. His, his instruction and invention insight was the first pro, uh, tenet, uh, don't know my, goes with doing no harm. Kind of makes sense, different take. Doing all good is bearing witness. And the third one is appropriate action. And what he taught was, if you get to appropriate action and you're trying to figure out what to do, return to steps one and two. So essentially build up a tolerance for not knowing what you're doing because there's not a you and you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Aligning ourselves with reality. What else? Who else? Yes. Hi. Um, remind us what the roots of suffering are. The roots of suffering are attachment. <laughs> so the first noble truth is study carefully the root what what suffering is get all the way to the bottom of it and you will find that attaching and pushing away are the thing that gives rise to all suffering and must be let go that's that's pretty much the story and essentially without seeing the suffering which means be present for the goodness and the joy. Be present for the harmful and the, the, the stuff that you don't like at its very subtlest level and be willing to turn away from that. Help yourself make the choices to turn those away from that because right there is going through the door to how you live without a Without knowing suffering, you cannot possibly become a human. Now, we all kind of heard that, we read that, but living it is the experience that's required. And essentially, the three tenets are telling us our body is more reliable than our mind. And we have to go through it, he can't do it for us. Other questions? Yes. Um, 
I've always wondered, well, first of all, I don't have any memories of past lives that I know of. I, but I wonder about genetic memories that, you know, we talk about passing on that to the next generation and maybe what we might be experiencing is something more like that than actual passing on. Here's my take on that, which is only my take on that. One is, when I was reading the book about the polycanon of Buddha's life, he didn't look at past lives until the night of his enlightenment. And then it kind of all flooded in. And he got to see how many eons of them there were. Number two, be here, be now. There isn't anything else, so whatever I do in this life is going to be the thing that I need to care about and know the most about. It's like they're embedded in what's arising in me now. If I want to learn about my past lives, I should just look at my life today. That's my karma right there. Okay, what else? Good questions, by the way. And remember, these are just my ideas, and I think there's a me still, so be careful. <laughs> well, knowing that we have exciting things happening after this, are there any last burning questions? Or comments? Sharing? Yes. Uh, oh, this is just to add into this, but there is a question in my mind about yes, we make choices, but there's a you know communal experience. There's you know the unknown, like you said, the spiritual aid that came to the and. How do you place that in this discussion? You know, it's not all our own effort, but, but not only not our own effort, but it's not all karma that has anything to do with us. Um, well, what I feel, what I, re I I kind of realize I'm doing it instead of saying this is what I'll do, is I trust the dark. Simply so because trust the Dharma. Yeah. I trust the Dharma. The Buddha was once in in that same uh, biography uh, characterized his basic practice as giving, control, and restraint. So essentially what he taught a gazillion times for twenty years, forty years, well. However many, forty years, yeah. Uh, so he just did a really great job of re repeating himself. <laughs> but the more that we can um, just be, just be, and allow that to affect our actions with an aspiration, that's that's what we can do. That's what we do. So, and and 
that means really not knowing <laughs> and being able to develop some patience with that. Patience is so necessary. And, you know, repeatedly, oh, we're getting the... <laughs> so I won't repeat myself. <laughs> Thank you for your talk. Thank you.